Shane by Jack Schaefer. Chapter 5 The weeks went rocking past, and soon it did not seem possible that there had ever been a time when Shane was not with us. He and father worked together more like partners than boss and hired man. The amount they could get through in a day was a marvel. The ditching father had reckoned would take him most of the summer was done in less than a month. The loft was finished, and the first cutting of alfalfa stowed away. We would have enough fodder to carry a few more young steers through the winter for fattening next summer. So father rode out of the valley and all the way to the ranch where he worked once, and came back herding a half-dozen more. He was gone two days. He came back to find that Shane, while he was gone, had knocked out the end of the corral and posted a new section, making it half again as big. "'Now we can really get going next year,' Shane said, as father sat on his horse, staring at the corral like he could not quite believe what he saw. "'We ought to get enough hay off that new field to help us carry forty head.' "'Oh, ho,' said father. "'So we can get going.' and we ought to get enough hay. He was pleased as could be, because he was scowling at Shane the way he did at me when he was tickled silly over something I had done and did not want to let on that he was. He jumped off his horse and hurried up to the house where Mother was standing on the porch. Marion, he demanded right off, waving at the corral. Whose idea was that? Well, she said, Shane suggested it. Then she added slyly, "'But I told him to go ahead.' "'That's right.' Shane had come up beside him. "'She rode me like she had spurs to get it done by today. Kind of a present. It's your wedding anniversary.' "'Well, I'll be damned,' said Father. "'So it is.' He stared foolishly at one and then the other of them. With Shane there watching, he hopped on the porch and gave Mother a kiss." I was embarrassed for him, and I turned away, and hopped about a foot myself. Hey, those steers are running away! The grown folks had forgotten about them. All six were wandering up the road, straggling and separating. Shane, that soft-spoken man, let out a whoop you might have heard halfway to town, and ran to father's horse, putting his hands on the saddle and vaulting into it. He fairly lifted the horse into a gallop in one leap, and that old cowpony of father's lit out after those steers like this was fun. By the time father reached the corral gate, Shane had the runaways in a compact bunch and padding back at a trot. He dropped them through the gateway, neat as pie. He was tall and straight in the saddle the few seconds it took father to close the gate. He and the horse were blowing a bit, and both of them were perky and proud. "'It's been ten years,' he said, "'since I did anything like that.' Father grinned at him. "'Shane, if I didn't know better, "'I'd say you were a faker. "'There's still a lot of kid in you.' The first real smile I had seen yet flashed across Shane's face. "'Maybe. "'Maybe there is at that.' "'I think that was the happiest summer of my life.' The only shadow over our valley, the recurrent trouble between Fletcher and us homesteaders, seemed to have faded away. Fletcher himself was gone most of those months. 
He had gone to Fort Bennett in Dakota, and even on east to Washington, so we heard, trying to get a contract to supply beef to the Indian agent at Standing Rock, the big Sioux reservation over beyond the Black Hills. Except for his foreman, Morgan, and several surly older men, his hands were young, easy-going cowboys who made a lot of noise in town once in a while, but rarely did any harm, and even then, only in high spirits. We liked them, when Fletcher was not there driving them into harassing us in constant, shrewd ways. Now, with him away, they kept to the other side of the river and did not bother us. Sometimes, riding in sight on the other bank, they might even wave to us in their rollicking fashion. Until Shane came, they had been my heroes. Father, of course, was special all to himself. There could never be anyone quite to match him. I wanted to be like him, just as he was. But first I wanted, as he had done, to ride the range, to have my own string of ponies and take part in an all-brand roundup and in a big cattle drive and dash into strange towns with just such a rollicking crew and with a season's pay jingling in my pockets. Now I was not so sure. I wanted more and more to be like Shane, like the man I imagined he was in the past fenced off so securely. I had to imagine most of it. He would never speak of it, not in any way at all. Even his name remained mysterious. Just Shane. Nothing else. We never knew whether that was his first name, or last name, or indeed any name that came from his family. Call me Shane, he said, and that was all he ever said. But I conjured up all manner of adventures for him, not tied to any particular time or place, seeing him as a slim and dark and dashing figure, coolly passing through perils that would overcome a lesser man. I would listen in what was closely akin to worship, while my two men, Father and Shane, argued long and amiably about the cattle business. They would wrangle over methods of feeding and bringing steers up to top weight. But they were agreed that controlled breeding was better than open-range running, and that improvement of stock was needed, even if that meant spending big money on imported bulls and they would speculate about the chances of a railroad spur ever reaching the valley, so you could ship direct without thinning good meat off your cattle, driving them to market. It was plain that Shane was beginning to enjoy living with us and working the place. Little by little, the tension in him was fading out. He was still alert and watchful, instinct with that unfailing awareness of everything about him. I came to realize that this was inherent in him, not learned or acquired, simply a part of his natural being. But the sharp extra edge of conscious alertness, almost of expectancy of some unknown trouble always waiting, was wearing away. Yet why was he sometimes so strange and stricken in his own secret bitterness? Like the time I was playing with a gun Mr. Grafton gave me, an old frontier model colt with a cracked barrel someone had turned in at the store. I had rigged a holster out of a torn chunk of oilcloth and a belt of rope. I was stalking near the barn, whirling every few steps to pick off a skulking Indian, when I saw Shane watching me from the barn door. I stopped short, 
thinking of that beautiful gun under his bunk, and afraid he would make fun of me and my sorry old broken pistol. Instead, he looked gravely at me. How many you knocked over so far, Bob? Could I ever repay the man? My gun was a shining new weapon, my hand steady as a rock as I drew a bead on another one. That makes seven. Indians or timber wolves? Indians, big ones. Better leave a few for the other scouts, he said gently. It wouldn't do to make them jealous. And look here, Bob, you're not doing that quite right. He sat down on an upturned crate and beckoned me over. Your holster's too low. Don't let it drag full arm's length. Have it just below the hip, so the grip is about halfway between your wrist and elbow when the arm's hanging limp. You can take the gun, then, as your hand's coming up, and there's still room to clear the holster without having to lift the gun too high. Gosh, a gory! Is that the way the real gunfighters do? A queer light flickered in his eyes and was gone. No, not all of them. Most have their own tricks. One likes a shoulder holster, another packs his gun in his pants belt. Some carry two guns, but that's a show-off stunt, and a waste of weight. One's enough, if you know how to use it. I've even seen a man have a tight holster with an open end and fastened on a little swivel to the belt. He didn't have to pull the gun then, just swung up the barrel and blazed away from the hip. That's mighty fast for close work and a big target. But it's not certain past ten or fifteen paces, and no good at all for putting your shot right where you want it. The way I'm telling you is as good as any and better than most. And another thing. He reached and took the gun. Suddenly, as for the first time, I was aware of his hands. They were broad and strong, but not heavy and fleshy like father's. The fingers were long and square on the ends. It was funny how, touching the gun, the hands seemed to have an intelligence all their own, a sure movement that needed no guidance of thought. His right hand closed around the grip, and you knew at once it was doing what it had been created for. He hefted the old gun, letting it lie loosely in the hand. Then the fingers tightened, and the thumb toyed with the hammer, testing the play of it. While I gaped at him, he tossed it swiftly in the air and caught it in his left hand, and in the instant of catching, it nestled snugly into this hand, too. He tossed it again, high this time, and spinning end over end, and as it came down, his right hand flicked forward and took it. The forefinger slipped through the trigger guard, and the gun spun, coming up into firing position in the one unbroken motion. With him, that old pistol seemed alive, not an inanimate and rusting metal object, but an extension of the man himself. If it's speed you're after, Bob, don't split the move into parts. Don't pull, cock, aim, and fire. Slip back the hammer as you bring the gun up, and squeeze the trigger the second it's up level. How do you aim it, then? How do you get a sight on it? No need to. Learn to hold it so the barrel's right in line with the fingers if they were out straight. You won't have to waste time bringing it high to take a sight. Just point it, low and quick and easy, like pointing a finger. 
like pointing a finger. As the words came, he was doing it. The old gun was bearing on some target over by the corral, and the hammer was clicking at the empty cylinder. Then the hand around the gun whitened, and the fingers slowly opened, and the gun fell to the ground. The hand sank to his side, stiff and awkward. He raised his head, and the mouth was a bitter gash in his face. His eyes were fastened on the mountains, climbing in the distance. Shane, Shane, what's the matter? He did not hear me. He was back somewhere along the dark trail of the past. He took a deep breath, and I could see the effort run through him as he dragged himself into the present and a realization of a boy staring at him. He beckoned me to pick up the gun. When I did, he leaned forward and spoke earnestly. Listen, Bob, a gun is just a tool. No better and no worse than any other tool, a shovel, or an axe, or a saddle, or a stove, or anything. Think of it always that way. A gun is as good and as bad as the man who carries it. Remember that. He stood up and strode off into the fields, and I knew he wanted to be alone. I remembered what he said all right, tucked away unforgettably in my mind. But in those days, I remembered more the way he handled the gun and the advice he gave me about using it. I would practice with it and think of the time when I could have one that would really shoot. And then the summer was over. School began again, and the days were growing shorter, and the first cutting edge of cold was creeping down from the mountains.